Please open your Bibles, if you have a Bible, to Psalm 62. The text is on the uh, back side of this morning's insert. The notes are in the bulletin. The text, again, is on the back. As we continue our summer through the Psalms, um, this is uh, a wonderful one, celebrating the importance of trusting and waiting for God alone. I'd like to begin our time this morning by reading Psalm 62. We'll have a word of prayer, then we will dive in. Psalm 62. A Psalm of David. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall? A tottering offense. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse Salah. For God alone, my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Salah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Lord God, help us to believe, to grasp, and to hold on to by faith, this glorious truth that you and you alone are our safety. You and you alone are our security. And that we have no other salvation, no other rock, no other fortress than you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, many of you probably recognize this psalm as the basis for a song we sing. We may, in fact, sing a little later this morning. Um, But this psalm, dealing with trust and confidence in God, is remarkable. It's written by David. And one of the remarkable things is, despite the fact that David is dealing with enemies, we see them in verses 3 and 4, looking to cast him down, this psalm makes no requests upon God. None. There's no petition here. And so what we see is remarkable confidence and trust in God as David waits for God. And it's instructive for us. The word only is dominant in this psalm. You see it in verse 1. For God alone my soul waits. Verse 2, he alone is my rock. Uh, Speaking of the enemies in verse 4, they only plan to thrust him down. Verse 5, God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Verse 6, he only is my rock. And the same Hebrew word for alone is used in verse 9, although the uh, translators of the ESV don't bring it forward. Those of low estate are only a breath. Um, 
And moreover, in the Hebrew, it's front-loaded. Only is the first word of each of those verses that appears in. Only for God, my soul waits in silence. Only he is my rock. And so on. So, so the word only, or the word translated as only, is dominant. Exclusivity. And so what we're dealing with is the trust in God that is exclusive. The trust in God that is not shared. And I think if we can grasp this type of trust, if we can embrace it, if we can utilize or, or believe and trust God in this way, we can experience the same type of security that David does. In many respects, the Psalms are a counseling manual. That may seem odd, but prior to the advent of modern psychology in the last 100, 150 years or so, God's word has had truth for God's people throughout the ages. Dealings with fear and anger, insecurity, panic. These are common to man. These are not modern um, creations. And so for as far as human history goes, people have been wrestling with these issues and God has been giving his people instruction on these issues. In fact, counseling really is nothing more than leading, encouraging people's thinking. And that's what these psalms do. They give us truths to look at, truths to, to ponder, to help us internalize and experience the peace that God gives. So Psalm 62 is a powerful example of confidence in adversity. David is surrounded by foes who want nothing more than to tear him down. And David is utterly calm. He's waiting silently for God. So the psalm breaks into three sections nicely. The, the salahs, both of them, <coughs> help divide it up. Verses 1 to 4, verses 5 to 8, verses 9 to 12. So let's begin with the 1 to 4, where we see confidence in affliction. Confidence in affliction. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long, O oh man, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Now this psalm has a repeated portion. You look at verses 1 and 2. Very, very similar to verses 5 and 6, sort of a refrain in the psalm. And it starts with, in both of these sections, that refrain. So first, we're to see in David's confidence and affliction, first, his dependence upon God, his dependence upon God. And these opening verses, that, that emphasis on only or alone is, is highlighted here. He waits in silence for God alone. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Now, now, unpack that. That means then David is not currently experiencing that deliverance because you don't wait for what you have. So the picture here is David needing deliverance, David needing help, and David not running around, pulling at straws, David confidently waiting upon God and God alone. That, of course, is the challenge. And so this psalm emphasizes the reality. The logic is, why would I look anywhere else? There is nowhere else to look. Why would I look for safety anywhere else? There is no other true source of safety. He waits in silence for God alone. And then he gives us the reason, second point, for from him alone comes salvation and security. 
And this is the, the thing we need to grapple with because there are many things in this world that promise security and deliverance. There are many things in this world that can give a temporary, short-lived measure of security. And David is looking at ultimate issues. But let's, let's take a look at some of those things that can offer protections and security. Money in the bank offers a certain amount of protection and security. We call money when we've got it saved enough securities, don't we? Insurance policies, locks on doors, firearms, medicine, and, and, and getting um, treatments. These all can, can help. And David's not saying he doesn't utilize any of these. We saw from Mitchell's psalm a few weeks ago that David pretended he was crazy and dribbled down his beard and did graffiti on the doorposts. Trusting in God alone does not mean not utilizing anything else. But it means everything else we utilize, we're seeing as coming in and through God. David is trusting in God and God alone, even as he may well take actions. Um, you, you can trust God and God alone and lock your door. You cannot trust God and God alone and, not, and lock your door. So as we look through the psalm, we try to figure out how do we know, are we trusting in God and God alone? This is a perennial problem for us. The, t- turn in your Bibles to uh, Joshua 24. Try to show what I mean. There's a term called henotheism. You don't need to know the name. And it's the belief, um, it's a belief system that has one big central God and lots of little gods. And I think henotheism is probably the best description for Israel's frequent idolatry in the Old Testament. When you read about Israel forsaking the Lord and worshiping the, the gods of the Philistines and the Canaanites, I don't think it says often that they utterly forsake the worship of the Lord as much as they try to do both. They try to both worship the Lord and Molech. They try to worship the Lord and Ashtaroth. Um, the, the logic being, yes, the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, but Molech can make it rain, and I need rain. I think that's frequently what's going on. I think that's very much what's going on at the end of Joshua in what I suggest to you is an often misunderstood passage. This is the end of Joshua. The They've done the initial conquest of Canaan. And Joshua makes a closing appeal to the people of Israel. And his appeal is that they would worship God alone. He's going to do it three times. And in every instance, all Israel will say is, we'll worship God. They will not get rid of their idols. They will not claim to exclusively worship God. So verse 14 of Joshua 24 Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river. They've done the conquest of Canaan, and they've got idols with them still. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in the land you dwell, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. That's the context of that verse that shows up on you know, quilts and frames. And I notice the people's response. And the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that he went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Ammonites, who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Notice what they claim. We're not going to stop worshiping the Lord. Notice what they didn't do. There's no, they got rid of their gods, or we'll, we'll stop worshiping them. 
They just affirm, we will continue to, we will not stop worshiping the Lord, which leads Joshua to a second challenge, verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. He is jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. They said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice. We will obey. What don't we read happening in this text? They don't throw away foreign gods. They don't claim that they will worship the Lord exclusively. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book. And then we read verse 31. Skip ahead. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders are not lived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. And then if you're in the junior high, Pastor Daniel, they're studying the book of Judges, which follows. And it is the record not of Israel's faithfulness, but of their continuing being pulled away to worship other gods. And I think in large respect, the setup for the book of Judges is seen right here. These people, I think, are claiming or trying to claim that they can worship both God and other things. And, and if you frame it that way, then their struggle is probably much closer to ours. It's not many of us, I'm guessing, who are, maybe you are tempted this way, but I'm guessing many of us are not tempted to simply put away Christianity, give it up and go you know, serve money, serve fame, sex, power, whatever. But I think we're often tempted to try to pursue both. I think we're often tempted to not serve God only. If you've gotten your mind time set aside for God, Sunday morning, that's God's time. Wednesday night, that's God's time. But Thursday, that's me time. You might be doing this. And this psalm is calling on us. It's modeling for us the exclusive worship of God, the exclusive trust in God, the exclusive looking to and waiting for God for deliverance. That, that's the emphasis, only. He waits in silence for God alone. Why? For from him alone comes salvation and security. Now, I said before, how, how do you know if you're trusting in God alone, that, that can be difficult. I would suggest sometimes we can't even know if we're trusting God alone. Our hearts are deceptive. They're wicked. It's not a matter of, I feel like I'm only trusting God. I, I would suggest to you find out with our next point, how greatly shaken are you when those other lesser things are taken from you? You, you find out how much you're trusting in your money when your money gets threatened. You find out how much you're trusting in your job and your position when your position gets threatened. You find out how much you're trusting in your health and your strength when your health and your strength are threatened. Because the conclusion of trusting in God in this um, absolute, focused, and unshared way, trusting only in God, is, I shall not be greatly shaken. And we're going to see that David has cause to be greatly shaken but he's not greatly shaken. So that's the logic. He waits in silence for God alone. Why? Because in God and God alone is salvation and security. Conclusion, if I am waiting for God, and if God is the source of security and safety, I will not be greatly shaken. That's the rationale. 
And that's the refrain. And then the challenge, of course, is the exclusivity. I'm guessing if you call yourself a Christian today, you would say in some sense, I trust God. The challenge is, do you trust him alone, only? Or do you trust in all the other things this world has to offer that promise to deliver? Well, now we move on from his dependence upon God to his derision upon his enemies, his derision upon his enemies. It's the only show up here, really, in verses 3 through 4. This is where we get the inkling that David really does have real threats facing him. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So we get at least three truths about David's enemies. And as we try to reconstruct what's going on, um, it's likely, I think, that David is king. If the high position he's referencing is his kingship, then David would be king. And if he is king, then this could be something like the rebellion under his son Absalom. It could be other things, but um, I don't think it's terribly important. Reconstructing the historical context, David could have told us with greater clarity if that was crucial. But I think imagine David as king with people who to his face are saying nice things but inwardly are plotting against him. That type of treachery fits with David as king and the reference of him having a high position. Um, but what do we learn about them? First, they gang up on the weak. How long will all of you, so it's not just one enemy, it's many enemies. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? And David sees himself as in a weak, in a weakened, vulnerable position. Um, he's like a wall that's bulging out, ready to fall down, and they're, they're pushing on him. They're, they're getting ready to topple it over. He is weak, he's vulnerable, and these men constantly are attacking him. They only plot destruction and delight in lies. And that's where the missing only in the ESV is. Um, no, 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 it's there, sorry. They only plan to thrust him down from side position and take pleasure in falsehood. And then the third thing we learn about them is that they are two-faced hypocrites. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So David is, is dealing with a position, a situation where he really feels some vulnerability. He's not in a strong position. He's like a wall that's tottering, a wall that's nearly ready to be knocked down. He's got a lot of enemies. They're plotting day and night continually, only his destruction, and yet to his face they say nice things. I mean, this is a difficult place to be in, and yet David makes not a single request of the Lord in this psalm. In fact, what he does is, I think, very instructive as we move from his confidence in affliction to counsel for action. Because of this situation, because of the truths that we've seen in verses 1 to 2, of his dependence on God, of who God is and where safety can be found, and because of the very real threat David is facing, David has counsel, first for himself and then for others. And this, again, gets back to the notion of self-counsel. David says, okay, there is a God who gives security and safety. There's a real threat. Notice the subtle change. There's two subtle changes in verses 5 and 6 from verse 1 and 2. The first is what is stated as a truth in verse 1 becomes counsel to himself. For God, my soul, waits in silence. Verse 1. For God alone, O my soul, waits in silence. He's counseling himself. He's speaking to himself. David is in effect saying, soul, soul, Wait, wait, wait on the Lord God only soul. 
He's, he's telling himself. He's counseling himself. He's speaking truth to himself. This is oftentimes how we put into practice biblical truth. We, we know things, but we need to remind ourselves of things. We need to tell ourselves, look, because these things are true, because there's a God who is sovereign and he loves me, I need to trust in him. I, I do this with my kids at night when they go to bed and they're scared. Does, does God know what's going on? Yes, God knows what's going on. Does God love you? Yes, God loves me. Can God take care of you? Yes, God can take care of you. So tell God your concerns. Pour your heart out to him. Ask him for help. We can, I counsel my children. We can counsel ourselves. David speaks to himself. You and I need to learn how to speak to ourselves, to counsel ourselves. So here's David. Soul. Oh, my soul. For God alone, wait in silence, soul. He's putting it into practice. This is the application. If, if the first verse and stanza is true, if this is who God is, and this is the threat that is facing David, then soul, you better start trusting in God, soul. That's what David is saying to himself. And we get a model of how to apply these truths. It takes more than just reading. We've got we to steep our mind in it. We've got to speak to our own hearts. To wait in silence for God alone. The temptation, of course, when God doesn't show up in our timetable is to say, okay, I gave God the first shot at it, so now I'm going to go on to this next thing to try to deal with my problems. No, wait on God. Wait in silence for God alone. Again, the logic's the same, since he alone is my rock, salvation, and my glory. And here I'm dragging in from verse 7 as well. On God rests my salvation. My rock, my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. And by the way, that word for glory is weight or heaviness. It's going to come up because we're going to see in the next and final verse um, section things that are light. On God rests my salvation, my glory or my weight, my heaviness, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. And so we can be tempted to forget that. We know who God is up here, but when God isn't showing up at our timetable, we can get skittish and, okay, I'm going to run after other gods. That's what the Israelites are doing. I, I really need it to rain. I've been asking God for rain, for the crops to grow. We haven't seen much rain. And, man, if we don't get rain soon, it's going to be too late for this season. So maybe, maybe we can go and worship Chemosh just a little bit. You know, hedge our bets. That's, I think, in some instances, what Israel is wrestling with doing. And I think, if we're honest, we can do the same. And again, I think you'll find out, if you're doing that, by how greatly shaken you are when the things that you are putting trust in are taken from you. Because notice, notice the escalation here. The other second difference here is, first, the counsel to himself. The second is the removal of the modifier. Verse 2, I shall not be greatly shaken. Greatly is gone. I shall not be shaken at all, right? No modifier, no qualifier. David's confidence is growing and increasing. As he speaks truth to himself, he goes from, I won't be greatly shaken, I won't be shaken at all. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. <laughs> I'm not going to be shaken at all. Therefore, he will not be shaken this is the security that so many in our world are running around looking for. And again, it does not mean that we don't lock our doors. It doesn't mean that we don't put money in the bank. What it means is, in our hearts, we've settled that we're, 
We're trusting in God first and first alone and only. And then as God's steward, as God's child, I reason through, is it faithful, is it wise for me to take these measures? And I think, yes, it can be. But it, it makes all the difference in the world whether we do those other secondary things to hedge our bets or in faithfulness. And again, we'll find out by how greatly shaken we are when those other things are taken, are threatened. We find out where we trust in God alone when all of a sudden unexpected bills come in and your savings start to disappear. You find out if you're trusting in God and God alone when you get the report of the disease, this illness. You find out if you're trusting in God and God alone when you lose your job or something else like that. And these are difficult things. I'm not suggesting these are not things that cause grieving and sorrow. If, if I was diagnosed with some illness, I would, I would grieve. But the issue is how shaken are we? If we understand rightly just who God is and who he is to us, we will not be shaken by anything. That's, that's what's being offered here. David is telling his soul, soul, wait on God alone. Trust in God alone, and you will not be shaken. And that, that's the, God's word for us. If you will trust in God and God alone, if you will wait on him and him alone, you, I, will not be shaken. That's David's counsel to himself. But now in verse 8, it broadens and goes out. First he speaks truth to himself. Then in verse 8, he speaks it to the, to the congregation, the people of God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Salah. So what's the counsel? The counsel is to trust in him at all times. That's another wonderful truth here. It's not as though God is a bomb shelter, but you only go to the bomb shelter when things get bad, right? If you've got a, or if you've got one of those older houses with the tornado cellars, you only go down there when it's really bad. You don't go down there if it's raining. You don't go down there if it's a little cold. You go down there when the big stuff's happening. God is this type of salvation and safety and refuge and rock, and he is it for all occasions. Trust in him at all times, O people. Moreover, pour out your heart before him, God is a refuge to us. Trust in him at all times and pour out your heart before him. Which I think helps explain some of the silence. Because how do you pour out your heart to God and wait in silence? I think the picture of waiting in silence is, is be calm. Be calm. Wait, wait and trust in God. Be calm. Quiet down. Wait and trust in God. By all means, pour out your heart to him. By all means, let him know your concerns. Let him know the, the things that are, that are making you afraid. Let him know the things that matter to you. Pour out your heart to him. Um, that, that similar expression is used in Psalm 42. Psalm 42. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I'd go to the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Not only is God a stronghold, not only does God provide the only and real safety, God, as your Father, wants you. You're not, you're not wasting his time. You're not bothering him by pouring out your heart to him. He says, come, lay your burdens upon me. Let me know what is on your heart. Let me know what's bothering you. Lay it out before me. Now, you do that in a supplicating way. You do that 
not freaking out in stress, but trusting him, trusting that he will defend and deliver. But you pour your heart out. Pour out your heart to him. Trust him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Salah. And that's the other good news. David is the anointed king of Israel. David has promises that you and I don't directly have. The Lord made a covenant with David that we benefit from. We share in that covenant. But you might be tempted to think, okay, David's access to protection may be unique as David functions as the theocratic head of the nation of Israel. No, David says, God is this same refuge for all of us. We're all invited to trust in God this way. We're all invited to experience this type of confidence this way. We're all invited to follow David's pattern, to trust in him and to pour out your hearts to him. This brings us then to our last section of Psalm 62. Contrast of ability. Contrast of ability. And what we're going to see are three sets of aphorisms. They're, they're pairings. You see in verse 9, those of low estate, those of high estate. Verse 10, extortion and robbery. Verse 11, once God has spoken, twice I have heard. So it's, it's a pithy way of putting things. And David's going to put up some of the things we might be tempted to hope and trust in. And so there's this contrast, and the, the contrast is in their ability to deliver. He's going to put up um, false confidences and a true confidence. And, and the contrast between them is one of these things is powerful to deliver and save, one is not. So let's look at the false confidences in verse 9 and 10. Those of low estate are but a breath, literally in the Hebrew, only breath. Those of high estate are delusion. The balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. There's your first. Do not trust in man who is but a breath. That word for breath, same word in, in Ecclesiastes, is used for vanity and striving after the wind. And here, in contrast to God being David's glory, his weight, his heaviness, man, whether he's of low estate or high estate, has no weight in this context at all. He's but he's light, he's but a breath, he's transient. We, we've seen that, have we not, in the previous weeks in the Psalms, right? I mean, we studied Psalm 39 a few weeks ago, and you may remember, behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths. My lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely as man goes about as a shadow, surely nothing for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth, does not know who will gather and so we can be tempted in putting our hopes in people, in man. And again, Israel's history is full of that king sending down to Egypt. Maybe the Pharaoh will help. Whether you're looking to the low or to the high, whether you're looking to the great or the small, do not put your hope in man. Why? He's, he's a breath. He's transient. He doesn't have weight. He can't really deliver. And again, we're looking at ultimate deliverance here. That's a false hope. Do not put your trust in man who is but a breath. Second, do not trust in extortion, robbery, or riches. Verse 10, put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. I think here there may even be a, a rebuke to his enemies. 
Perhaps they thought there was some monetary gain to be made for betraying David, for plotting his downfall. And people, for the money, what money promises, will make all sorts of ethical compromises, will they not? It's worth it because the money will deliver me. The money will keep me safe. The money will protect me. So, so what if I get it through extortion and robbery? It will protect. And David's saying, no, no, your, your money, your wealth will not protect you. It will not deliver you. And even if your riches increase not through wicked means, if all of a sudden you haven't been plotting, you haven't been scheming, the money's coming in, that is still a warning not to start trusting in that because just as it comes in, it can go. The Great Depression saw the evidence of many men and women who had put their hopes in money. And we saw that when they took desperate acts when their money vanished. Overnight. Again, just because you have money doesn't mean you've done extortion or robbery. We see both options here. Those who seek to get money through wicked means. And just if it increases. But either way, don't set your hope or your heart on them. We've already been told what to do with your heart. Pour it out to God. Don't pour it out to money. These are false confidences. Man who is but a breath, money, and riches. What, what is a true confidence? Well, the, the third pairing of this aphorism shows up in verse 11 and 12. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, the power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to man according to his works. Once spoken and twice heard. I'd like you to turn back to Exodus Look at a couple passages in Exodus as we close out this psalm. One of the reasons why having the records of what God has done is so precious to us is because we can go and read and remember and rehearse what God has done. These truths that are in our heads can start to take a greater hold on our hearts. And so this pairing... These two things, two things belong to God, David says. Power belongs to God, and steadfast love belongs to the Lord. Let's see one example where these things come together. There are many. Exodus 9, starting in verse 16. For this purpose I have raised you up. He's talking about Moses and Pharaoh and the deliverance from Egypt. To show you my power. So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So God is saying that the reason why he raised up Moses, the reason why he set up this cataclysmic showdown between Pharaoh and himself, is he might display his power. True power belongs to the Lord. If you've, if you've ever been in Iowa long enough to see any of our sudden changes in weather, we can have weather here, whether it's rain or hail or tornadoes that are humbling, Right? And you realize that all of our wealth and all of our buildings and all of our structures could just be knocked down like matchsticks. That's just some of the evidence of the power of God. That's just natural power. And by natural, I mean what we see regularly, normally. Then we have occurrences like the Exodus with the water parting, Pharaoh's armor being destroyed, supernatural evidences of God's power. 
Jump, jump from chapter 9 to chapter 14, an account of Exodus. And I guess what I'm suggesting is if you need help trusting God this way, reading the Exodus account might be a great devotional exercise to help remind yourself of God's power, God's goodness. Exodus 14, um, we'll look at verse 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Uh, the history of God and his acts in the Bible are, is a history of one with supreme power. And that power, which just set aside the greatest kingdom on earth of that day, Pharaoh and his army just pff, knocked them over. That power is meant to create a reverence, awe, wonder in us and cause us to believe and trust in him. So in contrast to man, and Pharaoh was a man, and he had a big army. I mean, that kind of looked powerful. It looked like that army might be able to deliver somebody. That army might be able to save somebody. No. That army was drowned. That's not a true hope. Wealth and money. No. To God belongs power. But not just power. If God only had power, we'd have a reason to fear him. We'd have a reason to respect him. We'd have a reason to take him seriously. But we may not have a reason to love him. But notice the second of this pairing. To him belongs power. And to him belongs steadfast love. To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. And that word steadfast love, the ESV translates as steadfast love is God's covenant or loyal love, the gospel love, his chesed. God loves his creation. He, he loves the, the wicked and the just. He loves the, the stars and the sparrows. You can speak of it in that sense. But God's steadfast love, his gospel love, his saving love is only ever spoken in reference to those people who are redeemed. Um, you could call this his gospel love. It's, it's very selective. This is God's love for his people in covenant by faith with him. And here's where we can bring the gospel, as it were, in. To him belongs this love for people who look to him and trust in him in faith. Now, when you bring those two things together, ultimate, absolute power and steadfast gospel love, now we've got a God we can fear and reverence and respect, a God who can deliver and a God who is good and loving and kind. Which brings us then to the final couplet. For you will render to a man according to his work. Turn to Exodus 34. Um, where these two themes come together. Moses is up on the mountain. And he's interceding for the people of Israel. They have... Forsaken the Lord, they've worshipped the golden calf, even though they call the golden calf the Lord. That's Aaron's attempt to try to syncretize the two together. Um, they corrupt the worship of the Lord. And, and, the, and Moses intercedes for Israel, and, and the Lord relents. And Moses asks to see the Lord's glory. In 33.18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And the Lord said, you can't see my glory and survive. 
But he does pass by Moses. And in 34, 6, he passes by Moses. And, and if you think in the sense of salvation history, um, Abraham doesn't know much about the God to whom he has to do. He's heard some oral reports, possibly. He doesn't have scripture. Genesis doesn't get written until Moses shows up 400 years later. So Abraham really does not have a ton of data, which I think explains in some degrees, like Abraham's negotiations with God over Sodom and Gomorrah. What if 50? What if 40? What if 30? He's learning that the God he's dealing with is reasonable, is just, is righteous, that there's room for an intercessor. There's room for pleading on behalf of the other party that what he's about to see happen to those cities as they're overthrown is not the tantrum of a child, but righteous justice of a wise and powerful God. But this revelation of who God is is, is the next big step, I think, in, in God revealing who he is. He, he gives his covenant name to Abraham at the burning bush. Tell them that I am sent you. But here, in Exodus 34, we get pairings of some words that just echo throughout the rest of the Bible. The Lord appeared before him, verse 6, and said, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, there's a bit of a conundrum there, huh? God says, I'll, I'll, I'll proclaim my name. I'll proclaim who I am. I'm the Lord, the Lord, and I am a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. I forgive iniquity, and I don't let guilty people go free. You go, wait a sec, how's that work? And I think that tension is supposed to be there. Now, the way that ultimately works is in the cross of Christ, right? Where God punishes each and every sin. He does not let a single sin go undealt with. He, he doesn't turn a blind eye to a single offense. And he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And Moses doesn't fully understand how this is going to work. God's, I, I'm abounding in love and I forgive people. And I do not let guilty people go free. And David, back in Psalm 62 says, in contrast to man and in contrast to wealth, God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. And in that context of power and grace, here's your final point, he will judge, he will repay man. I think that might explain why you can see God as the only source of deliverance. Aspirin might deliver you from a headache. It may not. But it might. But there's a living God who is going to judge every one of us. And he is good and he's full of steadfast love. He doesn't forgive the guilty except in Christ. So David, knowing that true ultimate power comes from God and faithful, covenant-keeping love is found in God, he looks to no one else. You know, he's, he's like that dog sitting, just staring up at his master, not distracted by anything. 
To you alone my soul looks. To you alone. And this, this psalm, which doesn't have a single petition to God, it has an exhortation first to David and then to us that we would likewise trust in him. But it puts out the character of God, the faithfulness of God, the futility of trusting in anything else. We would do well to follow in suit. We would do well to trust God. We can experience this type of peace and security. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to sing a familiar song, our closing songs, based upon this text. Would you please stand and join with me as we sing Psalm 62. Psalm 62.